to be able to give the rest of the world customers a better selection and price by cutting out a lot of middlemen. Welcome to the Global from Asia podcast, where the daunting process of running an international business is broken down into straight up actionable advice. And now your host, Michael Michelini. Episode 157, everybody. January is already halfway over. Can you believe it? And Chinese New Year is coming right up. I am shipping my son up to North China for the holiday. Grandpa and him are two of them going up uh, with the family in the cold. Um, convinced the wife and Maggie to stay down here, three of us. So also we're getting a good group of people together for our official Global From Asia course for 2017. Had a good chat just the other day with Michael Eagleton about it. And he's really excited to take part. It's going to be the first round and a deadline. We're going to close the car on January 25th with the first week. It's an eight-week program. Check it out, and I'd love to work with you. Globalfromasia.com slash course. And also our second annual cross-border summit. We actually have to move the dates back a week. Uh, Easter weekend is right in the middle of April, and it just seemed like too tough for some of uh, the speakers and other attendees. So we moved it to April 21st and 22nd. We got speakers lined up and people already getting early bird tickets. Crossbordersummit.com slash 2017-2017. And we'll forward you to the right page. Okay, and now for this week's show, Noah Hirschman is here. He's the managing director of Yangbu Group. And he has tons of experiences in China with export e-commerce, working at Groupon, DHgate, eBay, and others. And he's on the show today to discuss how the evolution of the Chinese export seller has developed over the years. We talk about culture and differences in feedback between Taobao and Amazon. And it's a, it's a lot of insights even for me. Um, I learned a lot too, so I hope you guys enjoy. Let's go in. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another Global From Asia podcast. I'm here in Shenzhen, China with Noah Hirschman and from Yangbo Group. Yep. And uh, we met through a lot of common friends, Chris Davey and Peter Zaff. And uh, you had an amazing conference right at the end of August, I remember. That's right, August 31st. Yeah, it was, it was great. In conjunction with World First, yeah. It was great. So, so thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. No problem, Noah. Um, so we were discussing the topic, and I... Thought this would be an interesting one is kind of how Chinese sellers have learned the ways of e-commerce from Taobao and these Chinese marketplaces, and maybe give some people some understanding of maybe how they've evolved into Amazon and overseas sellers. So maybe maybe first introduce yourself and uh, and and what you're doing here. And sure, sure, sure. Um, I've actually been in e-commerce for longer than I'd like to admit. Um, since actually before the bubble. I started working on websites in the 90s, oh. um, and then I went to work for Amazon in 2005 and was uh, head of uh, home electronics for Amazon, and I also was sort of flying back and forth to Beijing to help Amazon build a .cn site, which, as we know, hasn't turned out so great for them. I'll take some responsibility <laughs> for that. Um, uh, and then I've also worked for eBay and for Groupon, and most recently for DHgate, which is a fairly large B2B cross-border trade platform. Yeah, very impressive yeah. background. It's, and your Chinese is really great. You you spoke at the conference uh, yeah. in Chinese with your... Yeah, yeah it was okay. great. <laughs> so I think that um, you know uh, what we're trying to do now with Yangbo Group is to really target the Chinese sellers who are selling 
um, overseas, specifically on Amazon and eBay, although we do handle uh, Jet and some other, and Walmart and some other platforms as well. And we give them tools and services to sort of build their own capability, build their sales, build their traffic, build their understanding specifically of the Amazon platform and other uh, US-based and foreign-based e-commerce platforms. It's great. I mean, like the conference that you, you had uh, put on was two, or 2,000 sellers came and it was, it was a, a massive uh, amount. Maybe some, the evolution is kind of what we're talking about here. And yeah, hmm. like Jeff came on, who was actually at your conference and, and Cynthia Stein too. So seller labs and yeah. And uh, you know, they've also been discussing this with us and it's very fascinating. A lot of our, our listeners enjoy kind of understanding this. So, you know, what has been the evolution you would say, you know, maybe some, is there some dates or milestones we could look at? Yeah, sure. I mean, so look, th- this is a theory I actually heard when I was in language school in Beijing from my business business Chinese teacher. And you know, this this is uh, Beijing Languages and Culture University, which is a state school. And so this guy is like pretty, pretty strong, uh, greer with the Communist Party. So, you know, his, he told me a very interesting little factoid, which is when Microsoft entered the market, in 2000 and, or 1990 something, right? With maybe 95 with Windows 95 or whenever, whenever it was. Their pricing strategy was what I call a Starbucks pricing strategy. So there's two types of pricing strategies. One of them is the McDonald's pricing strategy, where a Big Mac is priced according to the economic power, purchasing power of the particular market. So if you see in China, a Big Mac may be equivalent to a buck. But in Australia, where things are super expensive, it's $9, right? So it's, the, the prices are variable. In Starbucks, Grande Latte is pretty much the same price no matter what country you're in. They keep it as a standard price, you know, in the local currency, but equivalent to maybe, you know, $3.50 US. So Microsoft came in and they used the Starbucks strategy. And at the time, when software was even more expensive, maybe Windows or Office would be let's say five or $600, you know, or maybe $400 even. But at that time, the average Chinese salary was maybe a thousand RMB a month, which at the exchange rate of 11 back then was, you know, 900 bucks or something like that. Um, Sorry, sorry, less than that. It's like a hundred, like 150 bucks, right? Or 120 bucks. So they would have to work six months (laughs) to be able to afford to buy over-the-counter legitimate licensed copy of Windows or Office. And Chinese people took this very personally. And this is what my teacher was telling me. They said, this is another case of the American imperialists trying (laughs) to keep down the Chinese growth. Now, I don't don't subscribe to conspiracy theories. I just think it was, you know, a, a particular methodology that may not have been so prudently thought through at the time. But what ended up happening was the Chinese started to pirate Mm-hmm. in a sort of a revolting way yeah. <laughs> to pirate this software rather than try to buy it themselves because they never could. And, 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 and in his opinion, and it's an interesting theory, you know, I'm, I'm sort of reiterating this guy, uh, this is sort of the beginning of, chir- of Chinese pirating goods, mm. especially technology, right? And so at that point, you know, there's a lot of fake goods. And also, you, you know, at that point, before they started to crack down on the licensing stuff, you could go into any of these markets. And and then yeah. after a while, they would sort of like say, <laughs> hey, come here, foreign guy. I've got some LV bags for you, $40, you know, $20. And it was started to become a big thing with Chinese fakes. And so the traditional wisdom about Chinese sellers, when you look at an American paradigm, right, is that Chinese people sell, Chinese sellers sell fake 
products, mm. right? And certainly on Taobao, you know, and Tmall and DHgate even, there's there's still lots and lots of fake products or products that are generally, you know, the end run of a legitimate factory. So if there's an LV factory, you know, then they'll they'll make LV for LV. And then when the lights are all off, they'll bring in some more workers and make LV for them, right? <laughs> and sell it at a much cheaper price, but it's, you know, it's much more profit for them, right? So I was, we were getting a lot of frustration and actually it's still now as much as ever of American Amazon sellers saying, these Chinese guys are not playing by the same rules as we are. You know, and so I was, you know, being a, a Sinophile and living here, was intrigued by this to try to understand what is it that these guys are doing that's making these upsetting these American sellers so much? How are they not playing by the rules? And of course, people always default to they're fake. They're selling fakes, and you know, for the for the story based on the story I just told. Yeah, the but the truth is that most of these guys are private brand sellers. They don't sell branded goods. They sell their own brands. Yep. And so fakes aren't actually one of the main things that I see that the, Chin the Chinese sellers do. They actually have other things that they do that are bending the rules sure. rather, than that, rather than the fakes part. Yeah, I mean, with Amazon, I think they got to be really careful. But I don't know if you, you remember the – I remember the days when uh, there was making light-in-a-box light kind of template sites. Everybody's making their own websites and having like 1,000 products on them and – Kind of doing the black hat Google SEO backlinks yes. when that used to kind of still work. <laughs> that was that yes. was interesting times. Yeah, no, too. we did that too when I was at DHgate, and of course when when Panda and Peng, <laughs> Penguin happened, wow, we just we lost so much <laughs> yeah. traffic, and we had to go back and redo all the links, you know. But oh, which they've done successfully, and things are back to normal. But that's good. That's good. It's the same yeah. issue. Yeah, same issue. Um, I, yeah, go ahead. Okay, no, this is really fascinating. I mean. Uh, I kind of always, I've also had these similar stories from, from, from Chinese friends that, you know, they a lot of times feel like they're kind of just, they've only got 20 or 30 years in, in this business, new business world, and they have to kind of catch up and they're, it's, it's, a uh, it's me versus the rest of the world kind of stuff. And, uh, sometimes Robin Hood in a way, like we can't make brands or we don't know how to make brands. And, uh, you know, we're just trying to get our money a little bit of little bit of a piece of the pie, so I know some of some of these That's true. perspectives. But back to your original question about Taobao, right? Yeah. So yeah. this was this was sort of a, a big kind of aha moment for me, maybe a few months ago, because I started to work with some intern, some domestic clients, you know, some people who wanted to market into the Chinese market, and started to better understand how to be successful on JD and Tmall and things like that. And I started to realize that the technique is completely different. And in, e in China, e-commerce is much more pervasive as a percentage of total retail than the U.S. So the U.S., it may be 10% or 11%, and in China, it's you know, 20% or more. And Alibaba properties, you know, Taobao and Tmall, have you know, 70 to 80% of the market share. Uh, and then JD has about 20, you know, and then the other 10 is split among every other e-commerce retailer. So people have been doing e-commerce here, even though China is, a, is is developing, you know, it's faster, but it's, it's behind the development, total development of the United States, e-commerce is actually more developed. So a couple examples are delivery. Yeah. So it's a big deal now that Amazon is doing intraday delivery in some cities. Well, everybody does intraday delivery here because you have what they call the bicycle boys, you know, the people with the 
who are riding either an electric bike or an actual manual bike. And, and in the back, their packages are stacked up like, It's amazing you know, how much they can fit you know, on those. 10, right? 10 feet. But th- this has been happening for years. And so for me, I expect when I order something from Taobao or even from JD that I'm going to get it within the same day, right? Whereas it's a real treat in the U.S. Another thing is payments. You know, in America, you have to have a credit card. You have to put in your credit card. It's very few or PayPal, right? Mm-hmm. Which is linked to a credit card. In China, they have so many payment options now, including COD. And when I first started working with Amazon, you know, COD was maybe 80% of the total volume. But now, because there's so many cool high-tech payment options, including Alipay and WeChat Pay, mm-hmm. right? The guy comes to your door. You don't have to buy anything online. You don't have to pay for anything online. The delivery guy comes to your door brings your package, and then says, how do you want to pay for it? And you can either give him cash or you can scan his WeChat barcode, you know, and you can pay instantly. So it's so much more convenient to shop online. So people are coming from a paradigm of being very good at online to begin with and have been for a while, but the rules are different in Taobao. So what are some examples of that, right? It's a lot of trust, right? Well, but the the main thing that we have found is, you know, Jack Ma, when you ask him who is his customer, his customer is the seller. And his goal, and also, you know, Diane Wang, who was my boss at DHgate, their goal is to help these Chinese small businesses. It's sort of a patriotic goal. Help the Chinese small biv- businesses grow. Help these entrepreneurs, these Chinese startups, and it's a very entrepreneurial culture, as you know, mm-hmm. help them grow fast. And so everything they do is oriented towards the success of the small seller on Taobao. Amazon, conversely, sees the main customer. I mean, they say that the seller's their customer, but in my experience, it's more like their partner to be able to deliver exceptional customer service to the end user. So everything is done with the consumer in mind and the consumer buying experience in mind, not the seller's experience, right? And so when you're focused on growing a seller's business, you can give them a lot more tools to be able to drive their business. So what are some of the tools that, you know, Taobao or any of these internal websites give you? Well, first of all, the, the most, you know, very obvious thing is, you know, you can sort by sales. So on Amazon, you can't, you don't know what the sales are. I mean, there's tools that estimate the sales, but you don't know what a particular uh, item is selling, right? But in Taobao or JD or any of these other ones, you know how many units they've sold and you can sort by the best seller things, right? And so, you know, this kind of also gives a little bit of a goal for the competitive guys to say, ah, this guy sold 10,000 this month. I only sold 8,000 this month. I want to beat this guy (laughs) and sell 10,000, right? And so I'm going to do what it takes every competitive culture here, as you know. So that's one thing. And another thing is that it's a listing site, not an ASIN-based site, Mm -hmm. right? So Amazon feels that, look, it would be easier for me to just search for iPhone 7, find one listing for iPhone 7, and all of the sellers are listing against it. Therefore, the content can be controlled, the quality of the content can be controlled, and the person who delivers the best price, shipping, which is called landed cost, and has the best feedbacks, you know, will deliver fast and has good quality product, good service, will win the buy box. And 93, 94% of sales come from actually the buy box, right? But at Taobao, they, that's not really not allowing the seller to strut their stuff. They have a listing. So if you do an iPhone 7 search on Taobao, you'll get 100,000 
results, whereas Amazon, you're really only supposed to get one, Yeah. right? Uh, and so this is another kind of big deal. Now, it's not necessarily a better customer experience, but it's better seller experience because they can actually own their own detail page. In, in Amazon, you can create a detail page as a private brand, but you have very limited space, right? You have five bullet points, 500 characters, you have a title with 200 characters, and you have a description in the bottom, which if, unless you know how to write HTML, it's all one giant blue of, yeah. of text, uh, it's 2,000 characters, right? But at Taobao or Tmall or even uh, uh, JD, the content is limitless. You can go down as long as you want and put in as many pictures, as many much text, and and, and anything that you want to do. And so, therefore, you know, it's, it, it, again, sort of benefits the seller. That also benefits the customer as well. So you talk about A-plus detail pages to a Chinese seller. They're like, yeah, so? Because mm-hmm. yeah. everything's an A-plus detail page for them here, right? That's true. Because of the content. I, I, I kind of miss, I don't know. I don't know if anybody talks about eBay here anymore, but I, eBay was a little bit more like Taobao with the listing model. Yes. I mean, it's still around, but I don't know if it's even people use it anymore. But you know, when I worked at eBay in 2012 and 13, I was the head of, uh, of electronics for for eBay. Um, you know, we were really heavy into this whole cross border trade thing, so we were really trying to focus on promoting Chinese sellers. We invented, you know, our, our, not my division, but eBay, you know, as a company sort of invented this whole e-packet solution. They they did this with, you know, China Post, Hong Kong Post, U.S. Postal Service, right? So for three bucks, you could ship something trackable with seven to ten days under two kilograms, right? That was all, you know, an eBay thing to be able to help these cross-border trade sellers. But the issue is, is that at eBay, the average selling price is like $10 or less. So if you're selling iPhone cases or cables eBay, you can sell thousands and thousands of units. But if you're trying to sell an actual base product, you know, a pair of headphones, a cell phone handset, something like that, those are not nearly as popular in eBay. Mm. And so the sellers who are, you know, these massive sellers, like, for example, the guy who's the famous eBay seller is a guy named Jack Shun, mm. who has a company called eForcity. It's a good friend of mine. Cool. In fact, they even have a conference room at eBay named Jack Shun <laughs> for this guy. He's the first guy to get to a million feedbacks. He's the first guy to get to two million feedbacks, right? Wow. Um, but he, you know, has recently seen a shift in his business too to go Amazon, uh, towards Amazon, Amazon as well. Yeah. And so Amazon sort of saw this cross-border trade opportunity. So a little history about where why Amazon has sort of focused on this so much. As you know, Amazon, when I was working at Amazon in 2000, maybe six and seven, JD, Jingdong.com, mm-hmm. which was then called 360 Buy, yep, right? That. And Amazon sales were the same, exactly the same. But Jingdong was willing to lose a lot more money, frankly. And, and Amazon was just not willing to just make the kind of crazy investments because they had basically unlimited capital and they were only making money on 15% of their stuff and just insane. losing a fortune and building up their distribution. I remember going into a subway station in Beijing, and then the entire station was papered with Jingdong advertising. I mean, who knows how much they spent on doing this? And clearly, they have not made profit or very much profit, but they were willing to do that, and Amazon was not. So now JD is 20 times bigger than Amazon is, right? JD has 20% market share or 19% market share, and Amazon has less than less than yeah. 1% market I think share. the WeChat uh, Tencent Alliance helped them a lot, too. For sure. Yeah. For sure, Right. And so um, Amazon, at, this, at some point, maybe when the president uh, from, from England, a gentleman by the name of Doug Gurr, 
who was a very bright guy, came in and he said, look, we're not going to win. We're too far behind. We're not going to win the domestic e-commerce battle, you know, with less than 1% where Taobao has 70%, Tmall has 70%, and JD is 20%. So what are our alternatives? And one of them is, look, we've got a lot of uh, foreign items that we sell that are relatively exclusive. So we're going to start importing some cool stuff that you can't get. But we have Daigo here, right? Mm-hmm. So that's another competitor to yes. that. The big idea was, look, this is the this is the root place, you know, the how do we say it? The the, the cradle of civilization yeah, for like where everything is made. The center or yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, you know, most things are made here mm-hmm. at this point. We should be able to really drive this cross-border trade business to be able to give the rest of the world customers a better selection and price by cutting out a lot of middlemen. So if you look at a typical ecosystem from a Chinese seller to an American consumer, right? You have the manufacturer, you have the exporter, you have the importer, you have the distributor, you have the retailer, and then you have the consumers. There's like six levels. Amazon vision is get rid of all those guys. It's just the factory and the consumer with only Amazon standing in the middle. Yeah. Right. Which is why they have now planes for the logistics and all this other stuff over the whole system. And and so this is a great (laughs) vision for them. I mean, it really will, I think, deliver a better experience that would be very hard for someone like Walmart to be able to beat them on. Right. So this was their thing. And so they said, look, eBay has been doing this. There's millions of sellers on eBay from China. We should open up these gates. And so they brought in a huge team. And they hired people in Guangzhou. As you know, they have a massive headquarters in Guangzhou. They have a headquarters in Shanghai. They have people all over the place who are doing seller acquisition. Yep. Right. And I hear this is a number that I've heard. I can't verify it that they have now two hundred thousand Chinese sellers on Amazon. In fact, they've had to close the new seller registration for this whole rest of this year. Yeah, right. I think it's still closed. So, of the two million sellers, which they announced publicly that they have, ten percent of them are Chinese. Are Chinese. But also, if you look at the total volume, I'll bet it's more like 30%. It's more. true. They do, they're bigger volume for sure here. Yeah, big volume. I think they also, it's not in my, my, my discussion today really, but it's hard for them sometimes to go into inventory. You know, a lot of times Chinese sellers still are OEM or, you know, making on, so they have to uh, learn, learn to actually buy stock, ship it to FBA, wait to sell it. Of course, the margins are much better, but I think that's something... Well, I call it their unicorn for Amazon. You know, they really want this to happen. And, you know, look, usually mostly everything that Amazon puts their mind to and the resources to at this point, they can figure out. Um, but the, but there is major obstacles to a typical Chinese factory model, an OEM model, moving into in e-commerce. And it mostly has to do with cash, right? So if you're doing an OEM and you're doing an MLQ of 30,000 pieces, right, you get the deposit up front, which is usually 30% or something like mm-hmm. that, you take that cash and you buy the raw materials. Yep. So then you're not using your cash for that. And then you bring in all these workers and you run the assembly line. And before it ships, then you get the full rest of the payment from the customer. And then you ship container loads on the ocean. Right. So the amount of cash that you need is a very, very short term, maybe two weeks or three weeks you can just get from your bank or whatever. All right. To do e-commerce, you actually have to buy inventory exactly. and hold the inventory and invest in the marketing of your brand. And it's just so foreign to many of them. They just exactly. don't want to do it. It's true. It, I, I'm sure we will talk to a lot of these. And uh, 
feedback. <laughs> I know yeah. we've there's been news articles and maybe there's some history of Taobao, maybe Taobao or Chinese e-commerce with feedback. Maybe it's uh, it's culture, but it seems like Chinese sellers sometimes <laughs> sometimes think that they're uh, negotiable on feedback with these consumers. Well, they consumers. are on yeah. uh, in, in, in in domestic sites, right? So there's you know these kind of click farms and then these companies that do a whole business of creating fake orders, right? So even to you know to get started on JD, for example, it is assumed <laughs> by JD, although it's not overtly written in a policy, but it's assumed that you're going to do a fair amount of priming the pump fake orders, and those orders are going to turn into traffic, and those orders are going to turn into feedback and and and, and product reviews, and that's going to help boost your search ranking, yep. right? And so here. There's companies that will do the reviews for you, and you can look at it. You can look at all of these reviews, and it just says Butsuo, 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 right, which is not yeah. bad, right? And it's five stars Butsuo. I mean, those are either computer-generated or, you know, some place in the Philippines or somewhere offshore of thousands and thousands of people who are doing these fake reviews. And that's how they're used to doing it. Well, as we know, that came to a, a head about a month and a half ago, at the beginning of October, when Amazon had a sudden policy change. Mm. And that has caused a, just a ton of people to get kicked off the platform. Yeah. It's uh, the whole, the whole, yeah, the whole system seems to be changing a lot. I mean, we talk about banking on the show a lot. And uh, yeah. I've even heard, it's not in my discussion today really, but I've heard of even sellers not having work permits in China, not being allowed to keep their accounts open. Just a couple, really, but it's really new. But, Wow, really? A little bit of rumor. I don't want to, I can't verify that. But, you know, but, but if you look at it from Amazon's perspective, it makes total sense, right? Why would they want to have a whole bunch of fake reviews on a product? Uh, how is that helping the customer at all? I mean, it's helping the seller because you can't sell anything without a review, mm-hmm. right? And it also helps your search ranking, as you know. Yep. But if it's not really a real review, and, you know, if somebody is, if somebody is on a platform and, and doing reviews, uh, and getting paid for them, you know, who knows, right? If it's if it's real or not real, even if it says, you know, please be objective. So I understand An- Amazon's perspective from this too, but it does make it harder for sellers to introduce new products. Totally. So, I mean, I'm I'm not sure if that how it works. Like, if somebody leaves a negative review in in Chinese e-commerce, like on Taobao, of course, nobody likes negative feedback. Americans are. <coughs> You're encouraged to talk to the customer directly. You are, okay. Yeah, yeah. So what you do is you you are encouraged to contact the customer directly because you're the person who's responsible for the delivery of the product and for the back-end customer service and for any returns that happen, right? Whereas in FBA, you know, that's handled by Amazon. And in fact, Amazon's got this black box where you don't know what the customer's email address is. It's mm-hmm. actually an Amazon email address that's created for that each individual customer. Yep. So you don't know. And, you know, putting your email sort of verboten in your reviews, et cetera, et cetera. But here, you know the customer's contact information. And if you get a bad review, you call them up and you say, hey, what can I do to get you to remove the review or alter the review? And they'll say, well, you know, um, it, it makes a noise when I do this. And so if you can replace it with one that doesn't make a noise, then I'll change the review. So let's do that. Or there's even further negotiation from that, right? right? But you are that's expected of you to do. And of course, there's the funny LA Times article. I don't know if you read it or not about... I think there was one that got... A uh, normal consumer in the US just left at one star and didn't seem to... Want right. to nego- he didn't want to negotiate. And uh, yeah, the seller was just begging for her job, saying that her boss is going to... That's fire right. her. 
That's and right. they got upvoted. That negative review got upvoted like thousands of times. Well, it got got tweeted. Yeah, it got put on Twitter. Yeah. And so I just sent to you know thousands of people that story, and then people just went and upvoted it. And now the not only is the product off the Amazon, but the seller has gone too. Oh, yeah. So that's a, definitely a thing you can't do here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's it's really. I mean. I, Cult is all about culture, right? I mean, that's why a lot of times people say eBay also wasn't maybe so successful in China, domestic China. Is they, like you said, they were like the Starbucks model. I like that Starbucks versus McDonald's. They didn't really adapt to the the, the market here. But yeah, I mean, I think selling online is, I think it's Jack Mata said or anybody, but basically just take the way the system works offline and you make an online system for it. So what's fascinating to me is just these cultures are getting closer and closer. And, uh, you know, I think some people have been saying in Amazon, you can almost tell from the reviews who Chinese sellers are and people like buyers or these consumers know that they're trying to figure out which ones are Chinese or not. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me, but I, I don't know. What do you think is the, the future? I guess Chinese sellers will just get, get better and improve. Well, they already are very good. Look, I mean, let's, 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 let's be honest about this. These guys spend a lot more energy and a lot more time and a lot more attention to detail than a lot of other sellers do. They're mm-hmm. very serious. You know, in America, there are sellers who are kind of pro, semi-pro. They have another job. You know, they do have an eBay business on the side, right? Yeah. In, in in China, this is what their job is. I mean, there are, especially in southern China where we are, in Shenzhen mm-hmm. and Guangzhou, I mean, there are millions of people who are just focused on selling on Amazon US or Amazon abroad, right? And they're very good at it. And they do, they have whole departments and all they do, and since, you know, labor is relatively cheap, yep. although in Shenzhen, it's getting, it's getting more expensive. High. yeah, it's more and more, yeah. But they, they go in and they have a whole people who are just tweak the title, you know? They put in a different keyword in the title. They change the title around. They put in a different, you know, number one photo. They change the back-end keywords, right? I mean, they just spend all day futzing with the listing, you know, yeah. and apparently, you know, they, they measure things pretty well. It actually it actually works. Right. You know, and there's other you know, they come up with other technology things, too. There's things that are kind of hitting your listing, trying to generate traffic. But those things generally get shut down yeah. by Amazon. And so what they do is usually more manual stuff, but they do a lot more of it. It's true. There's than like a lot of the American sellers do. responsible for the pictures of the listings and yeah, right. yeah. I know. And and the truth is is that they're closer to the goods. I mean, for a Chinese guy to go and get some Huawei cell phones or from Bluetooth headsets or whatever, they just walk over to the market across the street from their house. You yeah. know? For an American guy to do it, you know, they yeah. gotta go to China or they gotta exactly. find somebody in China and then they gotta like put a lot of money down and stuff. Exactly. A lot of discussions, you know, a lot of blogs and podcasts yeah. all about that. Those pain points. They have a huge advantage here, and they have a very, very professional, very, very intense attitude about driving their business. I think you know one of the bigger problems that they have is adapting to the Amazon culture versus Taobao culture, but also the English language is a challenge. You know, in most other countries, people speak English. In China and some other places like Japan, but especially in China, you just don't need to speak English, so mm-hmm. they don't speak English. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the one of the challenges. Cool. All right. Thank you so much for your time. I mean, there's so much more we could talk about, but uh, you know, we we can may have you on another show. But so, uh, how how can people reach out to you or engage with you and your your business? Um, they're interested. Sure. Well, you know, our our, our uh, website is uh, yangboogroup.com. Yep. Y a n g b o group.com, and that's the best way to get a hold of us. 
Um, and we represent some some American companies. One of them is called Marketplace Ignition, which is a uh, consultancy of how to help uh, sellers. You know, we actually consult with you on strategic things and and uh, mm-hmm. other operational issues that we can help you uh, get better at. And then we have eGrowth Partners, which is a dispute resolution and reinstatement company. If you your listing gets kicked off of Amazon or if your store gets closed by Amazon, we can help you uh, reopen it, you know, open, get it, Amazon to open it again. We can do all that stuff. We can't guarantee it, but we have pretty good success rate. Um, and then Seller Labs, which has three really good properties, uh, good websites, which is uh, Scope, which is an analytics. You can look at any ASIN uh, sales, the major keywords that are pointing in. You can really understand your competitors and where your gaps are. Um, Feedback Genius, which is a, a, a full within policy legal way of increasing your uh, review count because we don't offer any kind of discount, but more we just use the Amazon email system to automate emails, reminding people to write reviews. And then we have Snagshout, which has evolved. At first, it was a it was a review platform, but then after the Amazon policy change, it evolved into a promotional platform. So the truth is, besides reviews, you need to get or generate traffic to your listings. External traffic helps you rise in the search results. Yeah. And so this is we've got two hundred thousand people in the Snagshot community. You deliver a discount. It's not tied to any reviews. They don't write any reviews. If they write reviews, it's on their own volition. Yeah. We don't encourage it at all. Um, but that traffic of buying will help your Amazon listing go up. Um, and then we have Merchant Words, of course, which is really uh, very popular here. It's called Mots, which is magic words. Nice. Yeah. And um, uh, it's, uh, you know, a really good keyword engine to yeah, find the best keyword stuff. They've been around for, for, for so yeah, many years. Super, super easy to use and people love it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Noah. I really appreciate My it. My pleasure. Having me back anytime. Okay, great. Nice chatting with you. Cheers. Bye. Thank you, Noah. And I was also in conversations over the weekend talking with friends doing Amazon and they're saying that, you know, sometimes the way to stay ahead is just the complexity and some of the more difficult products that others just don't want to get involved with, you know. So if those were easy, then everybody else would be doing them. So maybe finding odd sizes or or different types of products. They were talking about stuff that's maybe not so sexy but can make you good money. And this this week's show notes, as always, are on the blog at globalfromasia.com slash episode 157. And please, as I mentioned earlier, if you're in town for the trade shows in April, Cross Border Summit is April 21st and 22nd and in 2017. Crossbordersummit.com. That's it for this week, guys. See you next week. Got the, another good one about. I won't. Uh, I'll wait, make you wait. Or right, how about that? Got a, and a whole bunch coming for. Re, we're going to still go right through Chinese New Year. Just keep letting them roll weekly. All right, everybody. Cheers. To get more info about running an international business, please visit our website at www.globalfromasia.com. That's www.globalfromasia.com. Also, be sure to subscribe to our iTunes feed. Thanks for tuning in.